Our reading of the scripture this morning is drawn from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning at verse 10 and extending to verse 31. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Then the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken... Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he is speaking boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus cried out, and he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. When I teach the Christian unit at EKU, One of the things that I do is I take a day and I walk the students through an outline of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as it is presented in the New Testament documents. I have to tell them as an EKU professor, uh, I can't tell you if this is true history or not true history, if these things are divinely inspired or not. I'm speaking as an EKU professor EKU doesn't have the authority to tell you divine things. 
But we're going to walk through a life of Jesus of Nazareth as the Bible presents it. And we're going to let the scriptures speak on their own. This would be the life of Jesus as the New Testament shows it. And one of the points that I, I work on in that outline is I make the statement that Jesus of Nazareth made moves and activities that could be interpreted as he is the Messiah. When he addressed the crowds, he did messianic things and invited people to enter into the question, who is this guy? The prime example of that is the Gospel of Mark. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark tells you right at the beginning of the Gospel who this guy is. The first verse is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or if you look at the original, it's even more emphatic. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So right from the beginning, if you're a reader of the gospel of Mark, you know who this is. This is the Christ we've been waiting for since the Garden of Eden. This is the Christ. But as Jesus steps into focus in Mark, Jesus doesn't show up and say, I am the Christ. Everybody, come look, I'm the Christ. Rather, he starts doing things that are Christ-like, and he invites people to question who he might be, and throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see them doing that. Every couple of chapters, you hear uh, the, 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 the microphone kind of passes to the crowd, and they say, what is this? A new teaching, and he teaches with authority. Who is this? It's stated several times, again and again and again. It's a theme through Mark. They're asking who he could be, and some of them are saying, well, he's Jeremiah, or he's a reincarnated John the Baptist. I mean, the crowds are talking all the time about who he is, and Jesus doesn't come out and directly tell the crowds, I am the Christ, the Son of God. He lets his actions and his person say that, but he invites them to decide that's true. And then when you get to the middle of the Gospel of Mark, you have uh, Peter and the apostles making the good confession. You know, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ of God. That's a pivot point in Mark, but even at that point where the gospel kind of changes its focus and now he's been talking to them about who he is effectively, now he talks to them about the implications of that, being the Christ, I'm going to be a ransom for many, I'm going to go to the cross, that sort of thing. He still tells the apostles, don't tell anyone. And it's kind of a shocking moment there at the middle of the gospel of Mark. You would think that Jesus would tell them, Go tell everybody, I'm the Christ. You figured it out. God gave you to know it. That's not in Mark. That's in Matthew, but that is said at that point. Uh, go out go out and tell everyone, I am the Messiah. No, actually, what Jesus says is he told everybody, keep it under wraps. And you continue to see people asking, who is this? All the way to the cross until there is a guy who gets it. And it's not who you would think it would be. It's a Roman centurion. It is somebody outside of the covenant, somebody completely divorced from the covenant in Israel, 
He is standing at the base of the cross, spear in hand. And while all, all these covenant people have not quite got who this is, this pagan Roman, this Gentile Roman says, surely this is the son of God. And that's really the answer. That's kind of the apex of the gospel of Mark. The Roman centurion gets it. And then as the book comes to an end, after Christ is raised from the dead, Christ does show up to his faithful disciples who have walked with him. And you've got several accounts there where Christ does go to them and say overtly, I am the son of God. But they've had to wait to the resurrection for him to do that. It has been Christ placing himself before people, inviting them to look and watch and come to a conclusion, Uh, effectively inviting them to judge who this could be. Who is this? What is this? What, What authority does this? Christ invites them to come look. That is the skeleton of Mark, but the Gospels do overlap and they share themes at various points. And here in chapter 7, John's gospel begins to sound a lot like Mark's gospel. If you look at several verses in this account, people are doing what Mark likes to show us them doing. Verse 11 and 12. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Or jumping to verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? It's effectively, who is he and where did he get this? You know, that's very Markan and... Uh, Mark only shows us this because it was happening, and so John now shows us it's happening too. Verse 25 and through 27. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but... When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. And then our reading ended with verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, "Where, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? So you're watching people uh, wrestle, speaking one to another, speaking to themselves, Uh, internal language, who is this? Is this the Christ? Do the rulers know this is the Christ? No, no, no. He deceives the people. He's he's a bad thing. No, no, no. He's a good man. You hear the language going back and forth. That's the context for our focus verse this morning, which is verse 24. If you are an average American, or if you are a typical evangelical, There is probably two verses of the New Testament that you know. You're guaranteed to know. You may know some more, but these are kind of guaranteed. The first one is John 3.16. That's everybody's favorite verse. The other one, though, is going to be Matthew 7.1, which is, Judge not, 
lest you be judged, right? I mean, that's that's a passage that the entire world knows. They think they know. Well, the same speaker is here in John chapter 7 and verse 24, and Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance. So I don't want you to judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So the same guy who in Matthew 7 says, judge not lest we judge, here says, judge. I want you to judge. I want you to judge righteously. Uh, in fact, I want to command it. Now, the greater context of this is in verse 19 through 23. Jesus is speaking to them about why, quote, they want to kill him. And they say, nobody wants to kill you. You have a demon. What are you talking about? Well, Jesus says in verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? People answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? These are the words that are right before our focus verse. Uh, going back in the Gospel of John, all of the conflict with the powers that be started with a good deed. There was a lame man laying beside the pool of Bethesda. Jesus raises him up so he can walk. It's a supernatural event. It's a healing. And suddenly the powers that be really do want to kill him. It is a hostile, violent response. They want to do away with him. Um, that's not what you expect when somebody does a good deed and raises up a guy who can't walk so that he can now walk. But it happens, and uh, Jesus calls it out here. He says, I did a good deed. That makes you want to kill me. Uh, and by the way, in Moses' law, it's not really Moses' law because it happens before Sinai, uh, but in the in the, the Old Testament law, if you circumcise someone on the eighth day, it may fall on the Sabbath. You don't get upset about that. Why are you angry at me healing somebody at the pool? He is attacking religious tradition. If you go back into the Old Testament law and you look for a passage that says you can't do a good deed or help somebody on the Sabbath, you won't find that passage. It is, it is not in Scripture. There are four things that are said you can't do on the Sabbath, and they all center around you will not pursue your calling on the Sabbath. If, if you're a carpenter, a baker, a housewife, what have you, you're going to lay those things aside. You're not going to do them on the Sabbath. That was not really satisfying for the religious <coughs> community. They wanted things a little bit more codified. And century upon century, you had a buildup of human tradition about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And that human tradition 
outweighed the scripture. It became the higher authority. And Jesus calls that out at this point. He says, you know, I want you to think about this from a biblical point of view. I want you to judge in this matter. And actually, at this point, this gospel is dovetailing again with the gospel of Mark, because if you go to Mark chapter 7, you have a huge section there where uh, you've got a conflict between the issue of the Bible and between tradition. Well, that's effectively what's happening here. The tradition is no doing a good deed to help people on the Sabbath. The scripture doesn't say that. In fact, the scripture says that if you're going to circumcise somebody and falls on the eighth day and it's the Sabbath, you're going to do it. I want you to consider what's happening between me and the religious authorities. I want you to judge that. I want you to consider that. I want you to weigh it in a balance and say, is this right or is this wrong? Now, if you consider it from the way you normally look at things, that's what he means by appearance. You're going to judge me as a sinner because you've been told all your lives by the religious powers that be, you can't do this sort of thing on the Sabbath, but I don't want you to judge by appearance. I want you to have a righteous judgment, and I want you to consider it, come to a conclusion, act upon that conclusion. That is the definition of judging, right? I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? The Greek word for judge here is the same as in Matthew 7.1. There's no different word. Uh, What you do in both passages is the same. And Jesus is saying, judge this situation. Am I wicked, like the authorities say I am, for, for healing a man? Or does this more line up with the word of God? Does it line up with God's revealed revelation in scripture? Judge me. Now let that sink in just for a second. You have been marionated in a culture that tells you there is no worse thing you can do than be judgmental. I mean, nothing. Sure, you can shoot a man between the eyes, that's bad, but don't you dare judge him. I mean, that's even worse. If you're going to kill him, you know, don't, don't have an opinion about him, right? Well, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, just said to you, I want you to judge me. Because that's the context. The context is not just judging. I want you to judge me. Look at what is happening. Judge whether I am righteous or wicked in this matter about healing somebody at the pool of Bethesda. Use a righteous judgment. Now, he's defined for us what that is. He has taken us to Moses. He has taken us to something that is found in the word of God. In doing that, he has defined a righteous judgment as being according to the word of God. But he commands us to judge and specifically commands us to judge him. 
so if you are to judge the very spotless Lamb of God who has no sin, who is in fact God of God, light of light, very God of very God, if you are commanded to judge him, and this is a command, is it possible for judging to be inherently a vice? I mean, inherently. Is it possible to say, now, judging, that is just, nobody does that. That is a wicked thing. Nobody should be judgmental. Jesus Christ just said, judge him. He said, judge him by the word. He said, righteously judge, but judge the very son of God. So there has to be a way to judge righteously or else you can't do that. And you are called to judge the person who is worth more than all creation. You are called to judge the one who is God himself. If you are to judge him, is there anybody better than him, above him, who you could say, well, now, yeah, you can judge Jesus of Nazareth because he says to do that. But, you know, John Smith is just much higher. You, you, you wouldn't judge John Smith, right, but you judge Jesus of Nazareth. That's play out? Well, if you go to the New Testament itself, you find out that doesn't play out at all. Jesus says, judge me. Therefore, judging has to have a righteous use. And then let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There, the apostle of Christ is addressing a congregation of Christians he is speaking for Christ because he is an apostle. And here is what he says in chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And that's the first use of our term in this passage. It is the same Greek word that we're looking at across the board. It's a simple word. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So there's going to come a time when those who belong to God, because that's what the term saint means, they are going to judge the whole world. Okay. So again, it can't really be a vice if we're going to judge the whole world at some point. Do you not know that they will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Angels. You know, beings far more holy and powerful than us. Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life, if then you have judgments, same word, concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to 
judge between his brethren? Did anybody keep a running tally of how many times we heard the word judge here? It's a lot. Now, some distinctions are being made. And one of the things that happens when you're dealing with an issue of, you know, what does it mean, judge not, lest you be judged, judge with the righteous judgment, one of the things that happens is we don't slow down and we don't make distinctions. Jesus invites us to make distinctions in our target passage in John 7 when confronting tradition, he talks about Moses. Or if you go to Mark chapter 7, Christ will overtly say, for the sake of your tradition, you put aside the word of God. So there is a distinction made by Christ. Tradition is here. The word of God is here. The word of God is not tradition. The word of God is something else. We must make a distinction between these two things. Well, here, there is a distinction made between the saints and those who are not the saints, those who are outside the kingdom. The apostle clearly makes that distinction. He says, you've got people who are in conflict with each other. Uh, what are you going to do about that? Well, you're going to judge them. You're going to judge what's happening. But you people have been going out to the civil courts to get unbelievers to judge what's going on between brothers. What's wrong with you people, to quote R.C. Sproul? Rarely do I get to do that, so it's kind of fun. But that's effectively what, what Paul is saying. What's wrong with you people? Um, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? You're going to judge angels. Surely you can find somebody with an ounce of wisdom to judge in these matters. I want you to be judgmental. I want you to deal with this inside the church. Judge between brothers. There's going to be problems between brothers. In fact, I preached on that last week. You know, that's going to happen. So what do you do about it? Well, you judge. You have to judge. You have to establish what's right, what's wrong. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do in John chapter 7. He's inviting us to say, is he right or is he wrong in this matter of healing a man who's lame? Uh, find somebody to judge in the church because the church is unique. The church is made up of saints, people who are drawn to the service of God, drawn to salvation, uh, they're totally different than the world. And if you haven't made that distinction in the passage we're looking at, if you go further on just a few verses, Paul will major in making this distinction in verse 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this is just a few verses away from where Paul is saying, you know, find somebody to judge. And he is saying, remember, you're not like outsiders. 
you were all these things that I'm mentioning, you were that, but you're not now. You will inherit the kingdom of God because in Jesus Christ, you are not defined by your sins. You are defined by being in Christ. And if we are in Christ, if we are in the kingdom, surely to goodness, God has given out enough wisdom to somebody to be able to figure things out. One hopes. Well, that only makes sense if we are invited to judge the Lord Christ. There is not exactly anybody in the church who is higher than him. And so judgment. Old English has a plural you to it. And so when you read the word ye, it means all y'all. Jesus spoke the plural you many times, meaning he had to be from southern Israel because he said y'all. And here he says y'all. Judge y'all not, lest all of you ends be judged, is effectively what the passage says. So why is it plural? Well, in context, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the way the Sermon on the Mount begins. We go back to the fourth chapter of Matthew, and this is what sets up the sermon, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. So Matthew kind of sums up, great things are happening here, and people are being healed, At this point in my class at EKU, I asked my students, what do you think would happen if one of y'all had a heart attack in class and I walked over to you as you're flopping on the ground having a heart attack and I laid my hands on you and I healed you of your heart attack, you were perfectly well when you were having a heart attack. What would happen? Specifically, what would happen next week? It's been a week, and there's been enough time for information to go out that Professor Westbrook can heal you from a heart attack with just laying his hands on you. How many people do you think are going to come to class next week? 
it ain't going to just be my students. It's going to be a whole bunch of people because they're going to want to be healed. There's a lot of sickness, a lot of suffering. It gets out. Westbrook can heal you. We're going to have half of the county. Well, most religious leaders, if that were happening for them, they would be extremely happy. We have everybody flocking in here. I mean, I'm a religious success. That's not what comes next. You've got all these people crowding around Christ. They're coming to be healed. And what comes next is, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus is experiencing all this really worldly success. The entire world wants to get to him because he can heal them of all their afflictions. And he wants to get out of that. He gets away from the multitudes. He goes up on a mountain. He calls to himself a certain group of people, which is not the multitudes. He calls his disciples to him. And he teaches them, not the multitudes. There's a whole sermon here on what's important to God. And it's not your health, your wealth, your prosperity, or any of those things. What is important to God is that you have eternal life, and eternal life is to know God through his word, through Jesus Christ. That's what's important to God. But more than that, Jesus here has made a distinction between the multitudes, which he wants to get away from, and his disciples, which is the visible kingdom of God. And so when we get to chapter 7 in the sermon this sets up, when he says, y'all don't be judging, lest y'all are going to be judged, the distinction is between you here who are my disciples and all those people down there looking for me to heal their diseases. People who are not in the kingdom, not my visible disciples, the distinction is between those who are his in an organic sense in discipleship and those who aren't. And so right at the beginning, it is not, now don't judge because judging is a vice and no human being should ever do it. It's you who belong to me as my disciples. Don't you be judging those outside. So already we have a bit of a cut to what the world thinks it means. But more than that, it's a warning. What comes after judge not that you be not judged is for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Think about that verse for just a second and ask yourself the question, is that necessarily a bad thing? The way you judge others, it will be judged concerning you. Well, do I want to walk through life completely unaccountable to other people? Do I, do I want to be the kind of person who says, I don't give a flip about how other people see me. Uh, I'm just going to do anything I darn well want to do. You like those kind of people? I mean, really, are those good people? The answer is no. Truth is, God created us to be social. Uh, we introverts may not like that, but he did create us that way. And uh, Jesus says, now, if you judge somebody else, be sure the same judgment is going to come back to you. 
you use a certain measuring stick on others, fine. They're going to turn around and measure you by it. That's not necessarily negative, but it is a warning. It's a warning that if you are hypocritical, it's going to come back and bite you. And in fact, that is where Jesus goes right after this. The next of verses is, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus does not say, there's a speck in his eye and there's a plank in your eye, and that's perfectly fine. You just go about life with a plank in your eye and let your brother go about life with a speck in his eye, and that's totally the way God wants it to be. Both of y'all are pretty much blind, and God's good with that. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He is saying that if you are a hypocrite, it's going to have consequences. And we are seeing that today in spades. You may not, you may not have noticed this, but the world does not hold the Christian church in very high regard. Now, you never expect the world to hold us in high regard, but if they are going to be, uh, if they're going to hate us, they ought to hate us for things that are blessed are those who are persecuted for, for righteousness sake, right? I mean, that's the way it ought to be. I hate you because you're very close to God. That's not really where a lot of the hatred is today. We preach you should keep God's moral standards. And the truth is, we should preach, we should keep God's moral standards. The Bible tells us very clearly, God loves righteousness, he loves judgment. Three weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 33, where we heard God loves judgment, and we're talking about that right here. Uh, the entire earth has been designed for that to be the home of that. Uh, Christians are called to partake of Christ's prophetic ministry, we are to tell the world what is righteous and what is sinful. That's all part of it. But what happens when we're doing that as we should be doing that? You've got the cutout, right? We are supposed to do that. What happens when we are doing that and yet statistically on the moral plane, the visible church of God is no different than the world? So... When Christians preach, you shouldn't be a thief, but we have the same amount of people who go to jail for tax evasion or embezzlement as are out in the world, or Christians preach, you should be sexually pure, and we have a divorce uh, culture like in my business, um, how's that going to work? The world's going to look at us and say, you're a hypocrite. They're not going to be wrong. And Jesus said that. He said, you know, really, judge not, lest you be judged. The measure you're going to measure to others is going to be measured to you. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is going to show your hypocrisy. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There is a need for the Christian church to repent. We need to repent 
of our playing fast and loose with God's commandments and telling the world, God's going to judge you for your wickedness. And that's what Jesus is really talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. He is not saying judgment is bad. In fact, this section of the Sermon on the Mount ends with the next verse, which is, do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So if you take the world's definition of judge not lest be judged, that it means you can't judge, how are you going to figure out who's a dog and who's swine? I mean, honestly, don't throw this before a dog. Don't give this to a, a swine. If, if you can't make a judgment, you don't know who is a dog and who is a swine. So that's totally, totally not obeyable. There, there's no way to obey Christ if that's what this means. It doesn't mean that. Judging is actually a virtue. Have you read Proverbs? How many times in Proverbs does the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon's pen say, use just judgment? Again and again and again, he says, consider what you see, measure things justly. God loves a righteous judgment. Well, when you get up to the New Testament, Jesus does not say, lose your mind. He actually calls you to judge the world. He calls you to judge himself. Look, come look at me and judge me. And if he calls us to judge him, judgment can't be a vice. We see it play out in the Christian church that in the church, we sit in judgment on difficulties because God calls us to do that because God wants to sanctify his body. And when he talks to us as a body, he says, you know, don't be judging others with a different stick than you want them to judge you with because they're going to judge you with the same stick and they're going to show you as a hypocrite. But that doesn't mean don't judge. I mean, seriously, though, I mean, you know this in your private life anyway. Most of you are parents. Have you ever looked at your children and said, now you do as I say, but don't you do as I do? Anybody done that? You can do it. You're a parent. You have the right to do that. Just how well that going to work out? I'll tell you, it ain't going to work out. Because your children are going to do as you do. They're not going to do as you say. That's just simple human psychology. That's what Christ is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. Saints, if you're going to be hypocrites, the world's going to slap you, and it ain't going to be for what's right. But you are called to judge. God loves judgment. And if Jesus invites the world to look at him and judge, it is a holy and a righteous thing to do. And thanks be to God for that. He has not left us in darkness. He is light. And light gives knowledge and truth, all of which cannot be attained unless you are a judgmental kind of person. Because truth has to be discerned. 